Today's episode is, yet again, sponsored by Sidetracked Magazine. Sidetracked is dedicated to adventurous storytelling at its very best. They use stunning imagery and personal stories from expeditions and journeys from around the globe, and you really can tell. If you are one of the few who haven't heard of them, what are you doing? (laughs) Go and check out their website and see for yourself. Browse and purchase from the back catalogue, subscribe, and browse, sign up to their free Field Journal newsletter, providing you with some of the best adventure updates weekly. To top it off, they've possibly got their best issue yet, due to release later this month. So go and check it out. Check out their Instagram too, some of the featured stories coming up. I'm excited. Hope you enjoy it too. Anyway, hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. Today's guest is ex-Royal Marine, outdoorsman, adventurer, Ian Finch. So all of these things you are thinking, what the hell am I doing this for? But there's this core desire to be in wild places, to tell stories and that kind of thing. So that usually overrides any doubt. And I think that your reasoning for being on these expeditions or your reason for being there, your passion, your purpose, the story, the narrative, whatever it is that you're there for, you know, that usually is this it overrides all of those moments of doubt. Insightful, inspiring and incredible are three words that come to mind when I've been editing this podcast. It's by far one of my favourite sessions and I really hope you think the same too. Ian's just so full of knowledge, you know, we're going to talk about culture, you know, Things like paddling down the Yukon River amongst the Athabascan people, following in the footsteps of the Cherokee, talk about wild places like the Scottish Highlands, overcoming challenges and taking on board research, and the balance between living in the moment and capturing the moment, which I'm sure is something that we can all relate on, plus so much more, if you can believe it. So listen on to find out, and be sure to check out Sidetracked as well afterwards. I hope you enjoy. Ian, thanks for coming on. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. I'm really good, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. It's You are yet again one of the many guests I've had on the podcast when doing research. It's just, you've got such an immense background. And I wanted to kick it off really by talking about your recent canoe expedition in Scotland, in the Scottish Highlands. How was that for you? Yeah, that was that was um, a pretty incredible experience because it was post lockdown. It was the it was the or post first lockdown that is, and it was the first real sort of experience where I'd been out after that long duration of being locked indoors and, um, and that hard sort of summer of not being able to get out into wild places. So it was actually a trip that we had planned for um, around March and May, and then obviously uh, uh, the lockdown happened. 
and we couldn't we had to postpone it two or three times and then when we got actually got the chance to get out there and we was able to legally get out into wild those wild places for a sort of extended amount of time um it was kind of just like a breath of fresh air to get out and do that kind of stuff and yeah and basically the premise of the trip was to we were working with an um an american paddle brand called bending branches and nrs which is like a pretty much Europe and America's and the world's leading um, water sports clothing brand. Um, and then that was kind of uh, overarched with a big sidetracked magazine project where we were going to display all the imagery and all the rioting and we was going to make a short film about the whole trip that we were going to do. And the trip was to um, canoe into um, one of the sort of the wildest and most remote parts of Scotland. Um, so, we started on Lochmarie, which is in the northwest, and the plan was to paddle the whole length of the canoe, the whole length of Lochmarie, and then pull the canoe um, over a mountain pass on a track. It's about a six or seven mile track that goes over the top of a mountain, um, and then to another lock. We were then going to paddle that lock, then, can, uh, then pull the canoe again over another mountain pass to another lock, which we're then going to paddle that lock and then pour the canoe again over another mountain pass, which is a slightly smaller one, back down to Loch Marie and then paddle back to where our vehicle was was um, located. So, yeah, it was a pretty epic journey. So when I say pour the canoe, it was portaging the canoe, which is sort of the common term for, for the canoe. Um, and portaging it either, if, if there was a track, we would... We would um, put wheels on the canoe so we'd strap wheels to it um, but two of the major portages which were the later stages of, of that sort of mini expedition were actually going to be dragging the canoe or carrying it over our heads over these mountain passes so um, we'd found this route we'd, see, we'd seen these two these two older guys do this route we found it online and we were just we've got to take this on and have a go at this um, and give it a go and how was it? The the highs, the lows? Because I think at one point you got into a bit of a, I think the weather rolled in, did it, if I remember correctly? Yeah. So the, 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 as with Scotland, you know, you've got to take the, the Scottish weather with a pinch of salt. So it, the, the, generally we planned the route so you would get the winds coming from behind you because obviously you don't want to paddle into hard winds, especially on a Scottish lock because they, the waves and the swell can sweep up pretty, but um, you know, it can, it can get pretty bad. So you want to be paddling with the wind for the most amount of time possible. So the first, the first day paddling Loch Marie, the weather was really beautiful. Um, and we, and, and the conditions throughout the whole trip deteriorated as we went on. So when we portaged to the second lock, we were then paddling into the winds. Um, but, the, the position of that lock itself was kind of in a huge wind channel so because it was this lock was so remote um, all the winds get funneled down there so when the wind started to pick up it was too you know it was like trying to paddle on open ocean um, which is borderline suicidal yeah. so what, what would happen with this lock as well is the winds came slightly from the side so the waves and the swell would come to the side of the canoe which is you know it's that's almost the worst conditions you can paddle in because then, you know, it makes this, when you've got the, the, the larger part of the canoe side onto waves, yeah, you're just, you're, you're just fighting against something that's incredibly dangerous. So we then had to pull the canoe, canoe over um, in real like fading conditions and fading light um, and make some pretty sort of tough decisions on what we were going to do because the following days we're having some pretty strong winds, like 40, 50 mile an hour winds and rain. So we, make some sort of 
you know decisions about what we can do and at that point we were in such a remote spot you have to kind of yeah make some some, some pretty firm decisions and stick to them i was going to say from a hiking point of view 40 to 50 mile an hour winds is kind of refreshing but from a canoeing perspective it's a little bit different isn't it yeah yeah i mean winds are your, your your enemy really when you're out on the water as with the you know some kayaking if you're on a, in a kayak or a sea kayak i mean you can go through that kind of stuff because the kayaks tend to cut through it the mm. canoe tend to you know it, it's a much more um you know everything to do with conditions and waves and swell and current um and stuff like that you know it's just a lot you have to pay a lot more attention to to conditions and breeze and wind and the wind direction and that kind of thing yeah but this this wasn't exactly your first time canoeing though so how was uh the canoe expedition 2000 miles along the yukon river through canada alaska what was that like for you um so with the with the yukon the the the, the start of the trip um resembled in some cases the, the scottish one because you're in big open bodies of water um so that the source of the yukon comes from many kind of different places so it comes from a glacier and off some mountains so there's kind of multiple sources it feeds into one big lake and then it kind of gets goes then channels into the river and another lake and into the river and then it becomes the kind of quintessential yukon river you know it, it, it goes all the way through the mountains of british columbia and then it goes into alaska and then it goes into sort of the you know the most remotest parts of alaska and then it feeds out into the bering sea which is you know some 80 odd miles from russia like in the bering strait so um yeah it's it, it's an inc incredible journey of the river changes in so many ways along that too and i mean if you think of 2000 miles if you was to stand in john o'groats in scotland you would the, the yukon initial the yukon river would actually finish in romania that kind of if you think of go through all the way through England, then into Europe and then out into Romania. So that, that would be the sort of the equivalent if you're trying to sort of picture that in your mind. Um, and it, a lot of the way it's, you know, 100 to 400 metres across, super fast current, which is about seven kilometres an hour. Um, and then it, 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 it goes from the sink, sort of that singular version of a river, which you kind of think of in your mind, um, to really complex braids and where, where there is sometimes 20 to 30 different channels um going through shifting sandbars which sometimes change overnight um so you could take one channel thinking that that would be the right route and then that channel would have closed off overnight and then you would have to make some pretty serious decisions about what you're going to do like drag the canoe across to another channel or something but you know where the main channels are we had pretty decent navigation systems so you know where that main channel is and you can and you can actually when you're on the river you can actually read the river so you can read the main channel um and you can also read the landscape in in sort of the near to far distance so you if you were deciding to which channel to take and some look very similar you can actually read the landscape a mile ahead two miles ahead and know that the river's kind of heading in that direction and being able to read that it's cutting through a certain valley or something like that so um we certainly had none of that in scotland because it was all about lock systems mm. Argentina and from lock systems um the equivalent of both of those you know you're going through pretty wild terrain pretty remote terrain and that's really the draw of both of those journeys whether they're a three-day four-day journey like it was in Scotland or three months which it was in the Yukon you know you're there for the the wildness the expanse the wildlife you're there for the lessons and you're there for just a pure adventure I mean was there it's interesting that you draw parallels between the Yukon River journey and the Scottish Highlands. Was there anything that you learned in the Yukon River that you specifically applied when you were doing the Scottish Highlands? One? Yeah, 
yeah yeah a lot a lot and that and um, uh, other than like the physicality the skill bait the skills based stuff which is you know the, the more you paddle the better you get um the more you're able, able to read water read the read conditions um but i would say kind of the other than that it's more about like the decision making process and um and always being able to think and be flexible and you know the thing about the yukon was every day understandably when you've got weathering weather involved every day is different um and you're constantly having to evolve and make decisions based on like the present moment so you're, you're going through certain conditions or you've got x amount of light um, and then you go through that decision-making process of like, what's the best thing to do now? Where's, you know, where are we going to stop? Where are we going to camp up for the night? What are the risks involved and that kind of thing? So with the Yukon, you could, because you're, you're doing that every day for three months and being put up against some, some pretty nasty challenges with regards to weather or wildlife and that kind of stuff, you become really fine tuned in being comfortable with the uncomfortable and making mm. decisions times and um you can i mean you can take that back to my life you know my career in the royal marines where being able to make tough decisions under pressure or make the most sensible decisions with you know with with, with difficult conditions or pressurized conditions yeah so i mean a lot of the lessons you learn on expeditions the the overarching thread of that is safety i think and managing risk um, and not making silly decisions and, and not being, you know, too, you know, too egocentric and being, we need to do this. We need to do that. What you need to do is stay alive and you need to keep your teammates alive. So that's, that's the most important thing. And a, a trip like the Yukon, we had three months to get that done. So if, if you're, if you're making decisions where you have to stop for an afternoon, there's no problem with that. With Scotland, we were a slightly shorter timeline and it was all based around, oh, we need to be here at this point. We need to be there at that point. Um, so those kind of decisions or those kind of timescales push you into making sometimes rash decisions. So you've got what we had to do was on both occasions is let, let go of the egocentric type sort of element to it, which is we have to finish this. The pictures, we need to be here to get these kind of pictures or this kind of story. What you need to do, yeah, is just literally stay alive. Yeah, it's something that's been said on this podcast before. I think a lot of hints have said it was that the only failure is not coming home. That's, that's the only failure. So everything else is fine as long as you're staying safe. And, and yeah, exactly what you said. And it's interesting that you mentioned being uncomfortable as well. We've had, I've had two people in the past mention being uncomfortable and how that is, that is where you grow somewhere between being out of your skill zone and somewhere away from being comfortable. That's where you grow as an individual and you start developing. It's just being that uncomfortable and being comfortable with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's, the, that's one of the things about expeditions as a whole. It's, there's going to be real times of being, there's you know, real moments of, of hardship and being uncomfortable. And that's not just a physical, you know, physic, from a physical perspective, it's a mental perspective um, and, and, and elements of doubt in what you can achieve. And, and I think, you know, if there's no periods of being uncomfortable, there's no growth. Um, so, you, and that's that, that, that being uncomfortable is what puts people off, I think. Um, mm. it's, it's, it's one of those common things and it happens on any expedition. And I think if there's no periods of being uncomfortable, then your, pro, your plan is probably not big enough, ambitious enough, mm. or you're not pushing yourself hard enough, you know. And in those, in those moments of being uncomfortable, whatever they are, 
are that those are the nuggets those are the gold the moments of gold and that is when you're truly going to grow as a person and then when you you move on to the next expedition or you're in a position where you can advise people on expeditions you can you can tell about those moments and those are the real key moments of learning so yeah i would yeah. say without without those moments of being uncomfortable there's definitely no growth well i mean you, you are someone who has achieved so much and you've got a lot of experience growing up were you always outdoorsy and adventurous um not particularly no i mean i came from a family kind of quintessential just normal british family of one brother and you know and and, and a not very not a massive family as a whole my dad was i would say very outdoorsy not in the quintessential terms of climbing mountains or hiking or anything like that my dad was um a fisherman so he was always fishing in every condition at every point during the year he was a he was um uh, hunter as well so he would go out and shoot pigeons and, and hunt animals and that kind of thing in any condition again he would work on like country estates with gamekeepers and stuff like that so um that was kind of what i was exposed to so my dad brought me into that world by taking me fishing again in all conditions and all weathers at crazy hours of the day <laughs> so opposed to sitting still for long periods of time fishing and that kind of thing but what i really gained from that was being comfortable in conditions and, and, and being comfortable outdoors quite a lot. Um, and then I got, I kind of moved into that phase of when I was with friends, we would go camping in local woodlands and um, building fires and that kind of stuff. So I would camp out once a month or something, just building shelters. And, and it just went from there to hiking, walking, wild camping, um, and just having a real desire and a need to be in wild places. So it wasn't one of those things that, was in me from the start and it wasn't I wasn't inspired by a father who'd climbed mountains or my parents never took me to the mountains or anything um so yeah it was something that I cultivated from a general interest and a general love for being in in wild places yeah I, I feel you there as well I, I used to think the Lake District in the UK was just some sort of rubbish sort of fam thing places where families go and they cycle around and have a great time yeah <laughs> um, I didn't realize it had huge mountains and lakes there, like proper. <laughs> I was just a kid, and that's the opinion I had all the time. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I, feel, I feel you though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, online, it, it looks like your outdoors and expeditions lifestyle really kicked off with the Royal Marines. What kind of lessons do you bring for your time then into your expeditions today? Um, I would say it's, it's, th there's a mentality that, that I, I was, you know very lucky to gain from that that period in the royal marines so you you think that, that it's the physicality aspects of it and all of being rough and tough and being able to handle this and handle that but it's not necessarily it's more now at this moment in time i look back it's more of the mental coping mechanisms it's the mental strategies it's the mental aspect of putting teams together understanding people understanding myself my position within those teams understanding leadership understanding risk management and that kind of stuff. So uh, the, yes, the, the physical going through the physical hardships of getting into the Royal Marines and then being part of a, a fighting unit in the Royal Marines. Yeah, you do learn a lot about yourself and what you're capable of, but I'm a different person now physically. So I was 22, 23 when I was in there. Um, I'm a very different person physically now. So if I was to put my, my body now through some of that stuff, I'll probably start falling apart to some degree. <laughs> now it's kind of reverted to the, the mental lessons that I took away from that and the being able to plan, um, being able to have a, a plan B, a plan C, um, and also really um, 
understanding team dynamics and what works within team dynamics and how to hopefully I think get the best out of people so it's it's just now I see it as this kind of formative period in my life where it gave me the foundation and the structure to really go out on expeditions and um, with other people and put together teams and stuff like that. Some of our previous guests have been in the Royal Marines too and one of the biggest lessons that they seem to describe is resilience which kind of yeah. fits with what you were saying just then. Um, yeah. In regards to thinking about resilience, can you think of a time when your resilience kicked in the most? So is there a time where you really wanted to turn back, but you just kept on pushing? Um, yeah, I'd say probably out on the Yukon a couple of times, you know, there, there were times when from the constant paddling, you know, you, you we had shoulder injuries. I had where, you're, where I was actually paddling, um, and my, we were just like hundreds of thousands, millions of strokes of, pad, of the paddle. You know, my left hand from um, two of my fingers down to my palm was completely numb. And you're just, you know, you know, you're paddling in wet, cold conditions constantly. Yeah, you, you do have those moments of of doubt where they're like, what the hell am I doing this for? And you, and you think, and what you've got to remember is with expeditions, seven times out of 10, you're taking three months off of work where you're not getting paid for this trip. You've saved up thousand pounds of your own money. You're still having to pay the mortgage. You're still having to pay phone bills, rent, all of these things. And every day you're away, you're probably in some, to some degree putting yourself in debt um, if you haven't saved enough money that is mm. and then home you've got to be able to then integrate back into normal life and start working and then paying getting paid straight away so all of these things you are thinking what the hell am i doing this for but there's this core desire to be in wild places to tell stories and that kind of thing so that usually overrides any doubt and i think that your reasoning for being on these expeditions or your reason for being there your passion your purpose the story the narrative whatever it is that you're there for you know that usually is this it overrides all of those moments of doubt um and yeah you can be you can be in cold wet horrible conditions soaked through hungry um and you sit there and you think, what the hell am I, you know, what, why am I doing this? Like, why am I putting myself through this? But then bang, you, you know, you, you snap out of it. And that central theme of why you're there, that, that why is the key, the, the key reasoning for, for, for you actually doing this trip comes in and it, and it's the kind of the overarching energy and adrenaline of, 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 of that knocks any self doubt out of the park. Yeah, I like that. And it's a nice segue as well, talking about why you're wise for still pushing when things are tough. Because I was going to ask next, what inspirations lead you to take on these adventures in the first place? Um, for me, personally, it's not about fastest, highest, um, world records, that kind of stuff, or world firsts. And, and other other people out there, they're driven by those because they're, I think they're fantastic achievements. And and I think it's absolutely amazing for those people to do those. For myself, it's all about narrative and story. Mm. Um, I go in every one of my trips has um, maybe not the Scottish one, uh, but every one of my larger trips certainly has the overarching theme of um, going into remote places to meet people who inhabit those remote places and then to learn about ways of life, spirituality, um, native skills, um, indigenous skills, or uh, indigenous connection to land, community, um, uh, 
uh, or it may be even a geographic region that I go to. Um, but everything has a, a, a search for, uh, each expedition has a search for simplicity and to meet the people that call it these wild places home. And it usually revolves around indigenous groups or native groups. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's my next question, which is, which is brilliant that you've, you've led me there. I mean, I love how you inject culture and uh, the research and the recognition of impact on them into your expeditions. From exploring the effect on the Athabascan people along the Yukon to walking 1,300 miles in the footsteps of the Cherokee, what drives you to dig deeper on these journeys? Um, I think ultimately it's, it's, it's a search for simplicity from my perspective. It's a search for a, a way of life, a way of thinking. It's a search for understanding my place within the environment, within the world, within culture, and also find learning about my connection to the landscape um and that and that kind of that drive and that interest and that passion that came from my dad also so i I grew up in a house where my dad was very much interested in archaeology native history um inuit art or um anything to do with kind of native cultures or indigenous cultures so we had we had a a lot of um artifacts in my childhood home that really inspired that interest in that journey and then I, I was given a book which was about um sort of the uh, guy called edward curtis who photographed I was one of the last people to photograph all the native groups in north america um and then i had that book and i've still got that book and i flicked through it and it's, it, it just fascinated me and interested me and then i started to learn about um indigenous cultures connection to the landscape um, for whether it's for whether it's for food or, or or just a way of life, a way of thinking, whether it's for spirituality, whether it's a connection um, or reconnection to ancestral sort of beliefs um, and heritage, it just I don't know why it just it fascinates me, and it's something that to- totally connects to my search for connection. Yeah, it 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 that cult sort of that that cultural thread drives every major expedition that I do Um, and then it also it's not always just about sort of my position within that expedition it's more about telling the story of people that live in these places what's happening to them culturally socially environmentally are they still able to live from the land if if not why Um, are the cultures being affected by that change is the environment and the change environment with with with, um, regards to climate change is that affecting their ability to live from the land what is their connection to um, their uh, their ancestors is is that still strong is uh, what is the younger generation are they still interested in you know native beliefs taking that forward are they connected to the landscape are they connected to climate change do they know about climate change so there's so much there the the, the that subject matter is so huge and really it's if ever there was going to be interest in a subject matter for me it was it would be like how are people living in these remote places and how do they feel about what's happening to their culture and to the environment because it's a intertwining um ribbon that that you know you know there's there's so much there that we can learn from from people that live in these places absolutely i love that you just kept chucking topics and topics and out, topics out there it's it's such a deep subject matter with so many threads, which is why when you go on these trips, you when you speak, sit down and speak to people, you could be there for days asking questions and talking and having conversations um, because there's so much that has happened, that is happening, and that will be happening to those people that live in those regions. I mean, when you're thinking about all these moments, is there a particular cultural moment that stands out for you? 
Um, yeah, yes. Yeah. I think there was one guy um, that I met on the Yukon, a guy called Walter, and he he lived in a tiny community on the Yukon called Nolato, and we had paddled into that community each day, and we we had this. Um, and by that point, we had this kind of process of respect and how we build rapport with people that we met when we would approach these communities uh and and then how we would then go about maybe spending a few days in these communities looking for people to talk to to interview to photograph and that kind of thing but this this guy uh walter he came down to um where normally in every community in yukon they, they have this kind of boat ramp area which is just the beach where they just moor the boats and put the boats up on there and that's a real sort of busy hub of the community so boats leave every day and that kind of thing so when we would pull up in a canoe the community would already know that there would be people on the river in canoes and they were coming down to that community and they're probably going to be stopping and they're probably nice people so we pulled up and he was there on a quad and he was the first person to meet us and straight away he was such a warm-hearted a generous person and he was like look you know you're more than welcome to come and stay in the community i'll give you somewhere to stay or at least show you somewhere that you could stay and i'll show you around i'll be your kind of mentor and your person of contact while you're here so if you want to speak to people i can introduce you so straight away you're just like oh my god that's just like that is what we wanted that is what we needed and we we just built such a rapport with him in such a short amount of time so he helped to stay some of that night, which was in a church. And then the, the, uh, the, the pastor who was working in the church, a guy called Brother Bob, um, was one of the first white people to be inducted into this community um, and shown sort of the native ways and everything, which was just incredible. So we met him and stayed with him. But then Walter was really uh, our real close friend for that two or three days that we stayed there and he had this really interesting journey of being born and raised in this community and then going to the kind of the mainland what kind of which is what they call it um, or Anchorage or there was another major city that people from native communities were going to to, to to study or to look for a slightly better life or look for maybe a little bit more money and a bit more of, of a, a direction so he when he was there he actually sadly uh, came under the influence of a lot of drinking and a lot of drugs and maybe a, you know a little loss of identity about who he was where he wanted to go um, and he spent a lot of time over there really slightly losing his path a little bit and then he returned back to the community for you know reconnection back into the old ways the old way of thinking to be around people that he trusted and knew to really sort of rehabilitate himself and then when he came back he got back into sort of the, 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 the art of really connecting with the river again and fishing um, and learning about how to connect with the fish and the river and the sort of the ebb and flow of the river. And he then became a fisherman and was um, harvesting salmon from the river and, 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 and really got back into the old ways again and really, oh, wow. really reconnected himself back to the landscape. And that story that we heard and we interviewed him, interviewed him and filmed him, that story, it, it just it broke my heart and then rebuilt my heart in terms of broke my heart because there, he felt there was nothing there for him in the community. So he went in search of something greater and then may, he may have lost his way and then came back to his kind of spiritual home and his people again and refound himself. Um, and that journey, that story, when he told us that it, it, yeah, it just, it, it gave me so much hope. Yeah, um, it's inspiring. And it, yeah. And that, and that is one story of native people, native group, you know, the, the struggle that they're going through at the moment, the struggle to modernize, and then, then the, the same thing, the struggle to stay connected to the old ways. 
Um, but there's so many good things that are happening and so many good things that we saw about people making that effort to reconnect. And he was, you know, just one small part of that, that bigger story. That's incredible. Moving away, um, uh, back to the Scottish Highlands now, actually. Um, I was admiring your photography in the Highlands uh, from, from that recent canoe expedition. The Highlands, from my experience, is, is a place where, <laughs> I don't know, you, you just can't quite capture the, the magnitude of beauty. And, and yet somehow you have. <laughs> so I was wondering, how do you balance living in the moment and capturing the moment? Yeah, that is quite, that's, a, that's a quite a difficult thing to do, um, especially when, you know, you have, like myself, I have like a volcano of creativity inside me, whether it's words, photography um, and, and, and that kind of stuff. So in the moment, it's, it's, it's quite difficult to balance being present and, and the real reasoning for being there, which is wild places, you know, connecting to wild places, adventure, and then being then being in a place where there's a photograph every way you point the camera and then there's also a photograph in every moment then where you you, you know it, whether you're canoeing and then you've got beautiful light you know you, it's like a frenzy a frenzy of activity where the paddle the canoe needs to be here the paddle needs to be here the light needs to be here you need to be looking there and so on and so on and so on so there is really a a, a, a tough dichotomy between being present and then being the photographer and being that creative which i am um and then there's also you then have the narrative why are we here do we does is this a real storytelling moment do i need to capture this to tell the story properly so you're, you're having these all of these influences and these threads that are all pulling against each other in different directions um and then you've got to know as a photographer and as an outdoorsman you know when to when to take a picture when not to take a picture and then just the conscious decision of should i be more present keep the camera down is the camera becoming this kind of middleman between me not actually being present in the moment and, and looking and appreciating the light, appreciating the mountains, the river, you know, the island that we're on, which, you know, has been there for thousands of years. Should I be there putting the camera away and just walking around and, and, and appreciating the sort of the true beauty of the moment? So it, you have to weigh that up within a flat, you know, a split second sometimes when you've got good light. So the, I've, I've got used to the fact now of what makes a good shot, what doesn't, when to pick the camera up, when to leave it. Um, and, and, and some moments need to be photographed, I believe. Some need to be captured, some don't. And it, it just takes a little bit of experience and a, a little bit of control, controlling the, the excitement of sunbeams coming through the clouds and hitting the top of a mountain um so some moments i think you know they, they 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 desire that frantic sort of creativity to get that shot and then some don't you just need to um weigh the moment up yeah just use your micro and eyeballs and just <laughs> take in yeah absolutely. absolutely have you seen the film the secret life of Ultimity? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I'm, I'm always, whenever I ask that question to people, I'm always reminded of that scene where he's on top of the mountain and he's trying to catch, capture the snow leopard. And he's got the camera out ready and, uh, and Ben Siller's character gets right up there and he's, he's asking about this print, like, where did he put it? Um, and snow leopard comes out and he doesn't take the picture. He just sits there looking through the lens and just, just takes it in. Uh, and yeah, that, that, that moment in the film always comes to me when, when I ask that question because it, it is, it's a, it's a real hard balance for some people just... It is. What do you do? <laughs> yeah, it, 
and it's something that you can you can kind of struggle with a little bit but especially if you're a really creative person and you're a photographer and you're passionate about capturing those moments mm. um, and then at the same time you're on that you're on that trip and capturing photos is a very strong element to that trip you, you can get you can get pulled too far into that sometimes and i've just yeah through through experience i've just learned that sometimes you know that some of the best pictures aren't the ones that you take they're ones that you remember it's about being present in the moment and you don't need to have a camera and take pictures to be present you know you don't need that picture on your computer to say that you were there i like that i very much very much enjoy that so looking at the opening line on the Vilmark expedition with Sidetrack magazine, I can see that a lot of local people and the guides were essentially telling you not to do it. So this is something that regular listeners would have heard asked before, but how do you handle people trying to place their own limitations on you? Um, I think it's like there's, there's, there's two sides to that. If it's local knowledge, then it's important knowledge. You know, local knowledge is the best knowledge of all. So when, when, when you're going into remote places, I always talk to people, get local knowledge, find out about risk, what's happening, what's the river like, or what's the mountain like? Is there any dangers up in that certain region, et cetera? If it's someone outside, someone who's not there, who hasn't been there and done it, I've got to accept that that person might be, yeah, placing their own limitations, or they might've had their own experience in their life where something has gone wrong. Mm. Um, and I would never ever discount anyone's advice or criticism or feedback or anything like that because that feedback in that moment whatever that is whether they're scathing criticism of something that i've decided to do or whatever you know that feedback is just is you know it's just something to improve or make me think a little bit harder about what i need to be doing is this right what i'm doing is that what they're saying do i need to listen and pay a little bit more attention to them so if someone says something like that to me i would never ever ever come back with a negative response it would be like thank you i'll have a look a bit more deeper into that maybe explain this is why i'm doing it this is the research this is the planning this is how we've mitigated risk etc etc so um i would i would listen to every piece of advice that someone needs to give me because you never know they might open up a little bit of um thought there that, that it was something that i needed to think about um and then we're actually when you're out there physically on the ground you you know that that little bit of advice that person gave might be might be really really important but I, i'm always one for opinions feedback criticism anything like that because it ultimately it's going to make me a better person it's going to make me more knowledgeable and it's going to make, make the trip much more well not well rehearsed but much more detailed and thought out and thorough yeah absolutely yeah, even if it just reaffirms what you were thinking anyway just in a different way it just yeah agreed <laughs> yeah yeah so you've described cold as a, a silent wilderness, a condition, a companion and a presence. But what is it about the extreme conditions that draw you in? Um, I think you possibly could be going back to the, what we were talking about at the beginning of challenge, you know, cold, cold weather places. I prefer cold weather places. Um, I'll probably be at some stage next year being in a hot place, which is going to challenge me great, quite, you know, quite a lot. But, um, it's, it goes down to the challenge. If, if, if you're not being challenged um, by weather conditions, terrain, um, ideas, that kind of thing, I don't think personally you're growing. You know, you, you, it's a cliche, but you do have to push into that or out of that comfort zone, sorry, to really grow as a person and, and not just grow physically and what you can, and, you know, what you can do and that thing like that. It's that mentality. 
yeah. and put myself into hard conditions and put myself into cold conditions or hot conditions or challenging terrain you know my these lessons are just going to grow and grow and grow and grow and you're just going to grow as a person um and, and that's a lesson for life you know like we, we 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 can we can put ourselves into harder conditions in life harder situations in life by you know starting that business that we've always scared or or or, or coming out of a relationship that's hurting us or um you know pushing ourselves in every walk of life you know cold is a metaphor for pushing yourself into or out of a comfort zone and and and, and learning what ian's just touched on there i think is really important and really stands true and resonates with me you know not only does it have a connection to next week's episode and announcement but i think that metaphor of pushing into the the uncomfort the you know out of the comfort zone is something we all need to do and certainly all what we've been through this last year and with that in mind the following question i really hope you like his thoughts on it and just the importance of getting outside and and yeah let me know what you think of it so let's hear Ian's thoughts on the importance of getting outdoors and into the wild before we start heading towards some wrap-up questions. So looking at your Language of the Wild feature with Blacks Outdoors, I really love the description and the passion that you've described for nature. I really wanted to get from you though, why it is so important for everyone to be adventurous and explore, at least once. I think it all goes down to our kind of DNA level sort of ancestral even though you know we, we live in that western world um that ancestral connection to nature and to the outdoors i think it's fundamentally something we all need um purely because it's it's it's, it's where we came from it's where our food came from it's where our spirituality came from it's where our connection came from um, i think nowadays we we have lost that because we don't need it um, we don't need to go into nature now to collect our food. We don't need to go into nature to collect water. We don't need to build a fire. We don't need to sit around a fire and create community to tell stories. We have everything around us. Um, and that's why I think like, you know, looking at the lock, lockdown, the first lockdown, everybody retreated into nature because, oh my God, all, we're restricted now. Now we're hemmed in by our own homes, the, the borders of our own homes now we're going into nature for relaxation, to detach, to connect, to reconnect. Um, and I think people found that nature may have been taken for granted, which is not a bad thing, but it's something that just happened because of modernization and the world that we live in, this kind of overstimulated world that we live in now. So I think it's, we're starting to realize that it's fundamental to the human psyche and our spirituality and our bodies and our minds and our physical world that nature is incredibly important and our time spent in nature is incredibly important yeah 100 percent agreed so last question before we get to some wrap-up ones then which is through all of this exploring as many corners of, of the globe as you can what is one moment that you would love to relive oh my goodness i oh, one moment that's that's almost an impossible question <laughs> i would i would say it wouldn't be one where I've completed completed it. You know, like the, the, the obvious thing to be drawn to is when I reached that summit or when I reached the end of that river or when I reached this, it's more, it's more about a collective experiences, I think, of sitting with native people or, or, or people, indigenous 
people that um, where we've had a connection to some degree of how important the outdoors is to every human being on the planet. And there's moments where I've seen totem pole carvers talking about singing a song, their carving is singing a song to the tree when they carve it. And that, that song breathes spirit and breathes life to the tree that he's carving. Or I've been there with uh, birch bark canoe builders and, and, and how they're reliving by building the canoe, they're reliving and bringing to life the spirit of their ancestors. You know, and that to me, those collective moments are the most important moments because it's, it's reaffirming that people care about keeping skills alive, keeping knowledge alive, keeping wisdom alive. Um, and that's what I like to do when, whenever I'm out with people, or I'm taking people on hikes, walks, canoe trips, etc. That I, I try to breathe life into the wisdom of the outdoors. Um, so that to me is, is my favorite moment. It's a group of moments, collective moments where wisdom is being restored and retold. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also one of the only moments listed on this podcast that you can relive because it is a collection. It's going to, knowing you, it's going to happen again at some point. So, yeah. And it's something that every person can take forward. I think where they mm. can go the outdoors into nature in their own unique way whether it's taking the kids into the garden to uh, um and, and spending the night in a tent to someone walking in a local ancient woodland to someone climbing denali <laughs> or someone canoeing a, a, a long river you know you create those moments you create those moments for yourself so it's um i think it's just all about encouraging people to create those memories and create those moments and um, yeah, I, th I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Perfect. So first wrap up question then, if you had guaranteed perfect conditions right now, where would you explore? I would probably, that's a good question. Again, a hard question. I would probably be in a mountain range in Alaska called the Brooks oh. Range what are three pieces of advice you would give people for overcoming challenges? Um, as the great Simon Sinek said, start with your why. Um, your why, your purpose for whatever you do must drive your passions and must drive the direction of your life, I think. Um, so if, you, if there's, a, if there's a, a region or a landscape or a group of people that you want to discover and go to like ask yourself why do i want to be there what do i want to learn what do i want to take away um but yeah start with the why the why is the you know is the the the, the spark to the fire the fuel to the engine um and every i think every question that we have in life every decision that we make is like why am i doing this why am i going there um i think that's really important that's lesson one Think about the, ch the challenge that you, you know, that you, you're undertaking and plan. You know, you, 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 one of those things I learned in the Marines, one of those things I learned from doing, you know, multiple expeditions, expeditions is if you plan that if anything happens, you can adapt to that plan. You know, you can, you can, you can, you can say, be resilient, be strong, be this, be that. But I think those are the things that come. They are a result of going on expeditions or they're a result of experience. But planning is something that's prior um, prior to that so i think you know plan for every eventuality um and i'll probably say uh, the third one would be 
be open and be flexible be open to different cultures different landscapes different ways of thinking different different outlooks to your own and be open to understanding new ways of thinking new people new belief systems um you know your your belief system yes is fingerprint specific to you but there are other are way, there there are other ways to think and behave and um approach the world and approach your the way you live um and and that goes in that ties into being flexible be flexible with your thinking and your beliefs and um and 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 be flexible you know your your mindset now can change your mindset now can evolve and that's only going to evolve when you put yourself in positions of challenge and push you put yourselves in positions of of growth and put put yourself in positions where you know there are going to be tough times they're going to be tough times physically they're going to be tough times emotionally um spiritually where you're going to have to rethink stuff but those times when you're you're forced into those moments that is when you know the magic happens that's where the gold is the gold is not going to be sitting at home the gold is not going to be you know dreaming of far off places or dreaming of that mountain in scotland or wales you know the gold is going to be you putting your footprints on that sand on that snow on that mountainside or putting your paddle in that river that is where the gold is and you will learn and you evolve and you'll grow as a result perfect and then lastly where can we keep up to date with your work and follow your future adventures um, everything mostly goes through uh, my my website, which is www.ianefinch.com, or my Instagram, uh, which is at ianefinch. Yeah, everything kind of channels through that, um, and my blog and all the films, all the photography are all in those places. So yeah, connect with me there. Perfect, and I'll leave them in the show notes as well. So anyone listening, you can go and go and have a look there. But Ian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you for your time, man. I enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening. Let me know what you think on btmtravelpod at gmail.com or just direct message me on any of these social media platforms of which the links are in the show notes of which Emily Scott got in touch with me said that she really enjoyed last week's episode and that she's gone ahead and actually bought the book Benita Norris's book The Girl Who Climbed Everest so looking forward to hearing what she thinks of that. Let me know if any of you have gone ahead and bought it as well. I've also signed up to this thing called Buy Me A Coffee, which uh, I keep forgetting to mention, but if you see value in these podcasts and you don't quite want to become a Patreon because, you know, the times are tough, then you can go on and just simply buy me a coffee. You know, there's no pressure and I get awkward asking these sort of things, but it helps with the late night edits. If not, a five-star review wherever you listen to the podcast will always go down a tree and help more than you can imagine. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode, one of my favourites. I'll look forward to seeing you in the next one, which is an announcement. And I hope you have a brilliant day.